I'm Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to the Hedge School podcast. We're dedicated to conversations about building a new folk culture, one which is deeply rooted in our native knowledge and traditions. The Hedge School was born from my belief that the personal, social, and environmental problems we're facing today have arisen not just as a result of our profound disconnection from the beautiful, animate world around us, but from a lack of rootedness in our ancestral traditions. So our work is about reclaiming ancient wisdom, not to try to recreate a long-lost past, but to use that wisdom to help us build authentic traditions for today. In our series of podcasts, we'll be offering you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. The wisdom contained in myth and folk tales, connecting with our places, reclaiming our indigenous roots, the practice of traditional crafts and old ways of knowing, and so much more. If all this resonates with you, do come and join the discussion in our online communities. You can find out all you need to know at www.thehedgeschool.org. So I'm here today with Bayo Akomalafe, and his website tells us that he is a number of things, all of them on the homepage, at least beginning with P. So he calls himself a poet, a philosopher, a psychologist, a professor, and also says that he's passionate about the preposterous. So before we go any further into your own background and the projects that you're working on, Bio, I wonder if you could tell us what you mean by the preposterous and, and why you're passionate about it. Thank you, Sharon. <laughs> There's another P I would add to the mix. I'm pleased to be here. So, <laughs> well, the preposterous, uh, uh, beyond the play, the, the play with alliteration there, there's a, there has been, there's a story that I was uh, born into and raised and nurtured into, a story about order and, and fixity and ontologies that don't shift and don't move. I grew up in a very Christian environment in, back in Nigeria. And yes, the, the idea that the world is straight, if you will, has, is part of, has been part of my upbringing and DNA. At some point in time in my journey, I met uh, some gentlemen, actually quite ungentle, um, some, some traditional Yoruba healers who, whose work with me opened me up to the preposterous, what I would call the preposterous, the idea that the world is uh, promiscuous, if you will. It, it does not abide faithful to those ideas that I, I thought were central to it. So uh, the reason why I use preposterous is to signal the, the composting of the, of the notion that the, that the world is fixed uh, predictable, separable, and just basically what Enlightenment scientists or Enlightenment philosophers uh, told us it was. Interesting, and and uh, I think you um, your your website says that this happened while you were studying clinical psychology in eastern Nigeria because you were born, weren't you, um, to Nigerian parents? Um, yes. And it says that while you were studying clinical psychology, you and I quote, chanced upon new strains of thought that completely unravelled your quest for epistemic finality. So that that was basically an encounter with your uh, with your indigenous um, Yoruba uh, healers. Yeah, that, that definitely contributed to my, to my uh, melting experience, if you will. I, I trained as a, 
as a psychologist in Eastern Nigeria, but I taught after earning a PhD in clinical psychology, I taught in a university in Western Nigeria, not Eastern Nigeria. And um, it was in Western Nigeria where I was actually uh, brought up that I met these men. But prior to my meeting and, and encountering these indigenous knowledge systems, I, I had been fortunate to encounter, you know, the first strains of what I would call the linguistic turn of postmodern thought. Uh, just the idea that truth is, is, there's a lot more happening beyond this final stable notion of truth, which was, as, and I need to repeat, very, very central to my upbringing and to the world that I grew up in. It had to be either this or that. And I grew up thinking I was on the right side of things. So meeting uh, those ideas, actually conducting my studies and my research in qualitative uh, phenomenological um, paradigms actually exposed me to those men and took me on a quest that brings me here today. It's interesting, isn't it? I remember um, I was I wrote about it in my in my latest book, The Enchanted Life, and my what I called my yeah. complete um, program of complete disenchantment that hmm. was undertaken when I studied my uh, psychology degree, where right. really you know, we were not allowed to use words for to talk about anything beyond that which could be observed and measured, and anything else was just mere imagination, which was quite a shock to me because I thought imagination was everything. Um, and I was told, no, you, you only had to be interested in, in what you could measure and what you could observe. So I guess any kind of exposure to a different way of thinking, and it, it's particularly if you combine that with a Christian upbringing, must have, must have been quite shattering in, in very many ways. Can you tell us something about those ideas that those men had, which had such a big impact on you? Being trained as a, as a psychologist, it, and, and to emphasize Western psychology, mm -hmm. so I, you, you had to, <laughs> I didn't learn about my own culture's ideas about what I would call, yeah, I think what is more popularly uh, distinguished as psychopathology, or those mm -hmm. people that suffer from those kinds of experiences. I didn't learn anything about that. I thought my culture had absolutely nothing to say that we were bland and, and we were dead and that we needed the, the salvific intervention of the West to make sense of our own experiences. Yeah, so, so uh, as you have beautifully articulated, Sharon, the, the, the idea that our means, our measurements are apolitical, neutral, and universal, and that reality is fixed just at the end of our representational bubble and all we need to do is just activate those tools and we would happen upon reality unstained by experience. That was what I was trained to believe and trained to employ with quantitative statistics kind of research. But I decided to tell stories and those men, for instance, would, <laughs> okay, let me just break it down to a practical, relatable experience of meeting one of them. And I asked, I asked a question about no, auditory hallucination. I think that was what I asked the question about. Uh, what did, what, how did they make sense of that? I think I had a client that experienced that and I, that question just kind of bubbled up to the surface. And so I asked that question, that how do you heal that? In my assumption of, of course, that's a bad experience. You wanna 
heal that. You want to cure that by any means. And I remember him saying, why, why would you want to do that? That's, have you inquired and found out if that's your ancestor trying to reach you? Or if you're, that person is undergoing a spiritual experience of some kind, you just don't heal or give a pill for everything that bubbles up. That, life is not a sickness. These are other agencies that you people, and he was referring to me, you people in, that have been trained in schools have, have forgotten about. You've chased, away, you've chased away these experiences with your modern uh, configurations and you've forgotten that the world is alive in different ways. And so, <laughs> as you say in your beautiful book, The, en uh, the Enchanted Life, and unlocking the magic of the everyday. It, 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 was, it was like witnessing magic for the first time to hear that they, that they met with spirits, they listened to plants, and then to read further, you know, that wasn't where I stopped, to go further into neo-materialisms and to study quantum mechanics and to learn that these ideas actually coincide with the deepest mysteries that thread through the, uh, these other dimensions in quantum mechanics and the new materialisms that undergird feminist studies. So I was really excited to hear that. And um, it was, I think it was my rite of passage into what I feel is my work today. Lovely. And what, what became of your psychology practice as a consequence of that? It totally died. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well let, let, I, still, I still teach. I still teach. I'm, I'm a... Uh, uh, part of my story is that I, there's another dimension to this that has little to do with psychology of the education system as a whole. My critique, my wife's critique, who was also teaching in the same university. She came from India to do a PhD and she started to teach there as well. We decided to leave the academia, if you will, and to, to live a small, intimate and intense life in India. And, and to explore other ways of being alive in the world, a, decolon a decolonization path, if you will. But um, my practice, uh, of course, there is no, because I'm totally disillusioned. This is a disenchantment with those Western paradigms. Not to say that I'm in a state where I would dismiss those practices and say there's nothing to them, but I'm given or more interested in exploring practices that affirm that the boundary itself it is not as boundaried as we once thought it was. And practices that acknowledge these indigenous wisdoms that tap into the healing agency of the world around us. It might sound like woo to lots of people, but I would say that it's, it's not at all. It's grounded, it, it's grounded in real experiences, indigenous cultures around the world, non-Western cultures, as well as Western cultures that were colonized. And it invites us to something deeper uh, a truth that we might not notice. Right, and it's very much about what you call a participatory experience, sense of not being separate from the world, but uh, literally emerging uh, into it, uh, seeing oneself as very much a, a part of everything that is, that is going around, on around us and, and being able to influence it and being able not just to communicate with, but to be communicated back to yes. by the world. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And also there's a great concentration uh, in most indigenous traditions like that on, on valuing the, the non-human as well and, and um, in some way, as you put it, partnering with the non-human. So is that very much a part of your own indigenous practice too? Yes, indeed. There is, 
there is just just as there is this resurgence of I think Stacey Alima will call it the insurgency of the vulnerable. Um, there is this emancipation of the material world, uh, noticing that the human is not apart from the world that he exteriorizes as mechanical or resourceful or utilitarian. There is, there, and there has always been, as far as I can tell, uh, an appreciation for the agency of the world. That the notion that human beings are central to the universe and that we have wisdom, as in that's a property of human being or human becoming, is laughable to the traditions that I'm now discovering as part of my own identity. So the, the Yoruba people would, the, especially these healers, because I have to emphasize that most of the people that I grew up with as part of my tribe in Nigeria would not agree with most of the things I'm saying right now, because that part of the world, that part of my country is heavily Christianized. And so there is no appreciation for the agency of the universe or the world around us or the non-human. But these people that I've been connected, that I've been privileged to meet, do speak about, you know, these old knowledges, the idea that plants have a say in how healing happens, the idea that um, there are subtle bodies that are part of us, you know, part of how we come to be in the world. And, 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 and just generally the notion that human beings are connected by, by something, and I think I wrote my paper on this, something called Aye, for instance, that that's a, a larger than human presence, a conspiratorial reality, if you will, um, so that it's not up to us to decide or to control how the world happens or how healing happens or how our identity is formed. It's up to something larger than us. So yes, I am coming to terms with that in my journey. I'm learning to listen. I'm learning to be attuned to the modern human. And that's important, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, um, I'm perhaps you're aware, but it, exactly the same thing applies in a sense in Ireland, mm. which was um, subject also, you know, a, yeah. a lot earlier to a grand process of Christianization in the Catholic Church. Didn't entirely yes. succeed in stamping out the old ways here, thank heavens. But, <laughs> you know, the, the, old, the old stories make it very clear, the old myths that remain to us that were happily written down very, very early, make it very clear that the wisdom of, of a crow was of as much interest to our ancestors as the wisdom of a human being. It was recognized as being a different kind of wisdom, you know, the kind of wisdom that that we don't access. We just don't have the same way of looking at the world that a crow does, but a crow was absolutely to be respected for what it brought. And and that right. gives me a lot of confidence that, that we have something here to, to go back to, to pick yes. up on. Um, yes. and, and, and tell me, why, why do you think, I'm sure we'll, we'll both agree on, on the answer, why do you think it's so important? <laughs> At the, at the moment for people to go back to these indigenous ways of, of being in the world. Mm. It, it, just to say quickly, Sharon, that, you know, if not for the people listening to our conversation, it's basically like preaching to the choir. So <laughs> it's both of us already agree on these points, but it's great to touch ground and touch base with these ideas over and over again. Well, I feel that to, to answer the question or to attempt to dance with the question, um, uh, why do we need to? Why do we need to return? 
well, I, I would say it's not even quite a returning. Like it's, it's, it's not even a going back to the past. And here I would evoke or the words of Karen Barad when she says the past is yet to come, if you will. And, and by saying that, she recovers a sense of time that is not linear or progressive or, or just unidirectional or human-based. It's not the empty, homogeneous time of industry. It's a time that is messy. It's time that is messy and non-human and mangled and conspiratorial and charged in different places, circular, if you will. And so it's not quite a returning for me as it is, as it is the dramatic shifts in the world that is bringing us to a place of recovery. And I, when I say the word recovery, I would, I would use it in terms of putting a slash between re and recovery, not in terms of <laughs> regaining something lost, but in re-engineering what it means to be alive today. And things around the world inform that, you know, just the fact that we're in the Anthropocene the idea that our systems are suddenly imploding, if you will, or we're losing our trust in those legacy institutions that form the foundation of our experiences. It's not just climate change. It's not just the idea of the nation state. It's not just the shadows of our monetary systems. It's, it's just that human experience yearns for more. And we're at a point in time where we gain in a sense of trust in those material dimensions that we have fought to escape, <laughs> whether it's in modern escapism or postmodern escapism, we're coming back to earth. We're coming down to earth. And that's recovering a sense of humility and enchantment and a, a, a way of saying we're part of this web of life. But just, to, just in a point, in pointed fashion, let me just say that uh, I think it's becoming clear, it's dawning on us that the ways we've responded to crisis around us is part of the crisis. That the ways we've articulated the problems that we are trying to resolve is part of the problem. And so there is an opening, if you, if you will, a topographical shift that allows for alternative wisdoms to gain ground and to be powerful once again. And yeah, that's, that's probably the most exciting thing for me now. We're in exci exciting times, troubling times, but exciting times. And what it means to be human is yet to come. Interesting. Uh, one of the questions um, I can't help but always want to ask people, and I guess it's the psychologist in me still, is, uh, you know, th those of us who recognize the, the mess that the world is in, how do you choose to live in a, in a situation like that without losing hope? Because it's very easy to lose hope, isn't it? Whenever yeah, you listen to yeah. the news, the latest catastrophe, whether it's human catastrophe or environmental catastrophe. And, and obviously, I'm not suggesting that there, are any, that there is any one way of responding to it. Some people um, choose to respond by becoming activists. Some people choose to respond by, by writing or producing art. You know, I'm not looking for an, an answer that everybody should behave this way. I'm kind of interested in every individual's response response to it? What, what keeps you going? How, how do you think it is possible for you personally to live well in very challenging times? Hmm. So Sharon, it, there, there is at the heart of that question, I think there is, and, and I think this, this resonates for me because I've been very recently part of conversations, not just in Schumacher, but little conference that held before I did some teaching just a few weeks back at Schumacher. Schumacher College in Devon, there is, a, there is some recognition that activism 
and you, you brought this up, so I'm just going to address that. Activism, as we understand it, uh, needs to change as well. One of the myths in activism is that we can only respond to the world. Since there are big troubles in the world, we need big solutions, right? That's the Newtonian mechanism at work again. So we garbage in, garbage out. There's climate change. We need nation states to gather together. We need the money shots. We need a huge funding. We need to do something big to respond to big problems. And that's the idea. I, I don't, I think I'm gaining a level of trust in, in what you describe as magic in your work. And I haven't, I haven't read your latest book, but I intend on doing that. And, and what people are referring to as entanglement or interbeing, which, which basically says, which says our commitments to size, our commitments to size, we should be concerned about it. We should question it. I mean, if an atomic bomb, if, if a tiny thing like an atom can cause the devastation in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then what is size in our understanding of how things come to matter? So maybe um, in an entangled world, small and big are yet to come in terms of being indeterminate. That, that means I, I, my activism could be putting my daughter to sleep every night and telling my son a story or, or singing. And this might seem dismissive or politically stultifying, and I've, I've been through the motions of that. I've, I've wondered if I shouldn't be out on the streets and doing some stuff. And I've been through that as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to really see that sometimes, as I've said earlier, we tend to repeat the same features of the systems that we're trying to confront when we go out there to confront them. We tend to re repeat the dimensions and the paradigms. And so the question is, what can we do differently? Or what are we already doing differently? In my own practice, in my own personal walk, I, which we can talk about this. I don't know if there's space to talk about it. I call it post-activism. And there, are some, <laughs> there is a string of arguments that I could submit to you to, to flesh that out. But in my own personal work, I am learning to see that I would do as much as possible for the world at large if I focus on the small, the, the sometimes invisible, the, the, the occluded, the displaced, if I, if I give my time to planting a seed, it, it, it will not resolve stuff. But maybe there are no solutions in a world that is entangled. Maybe there's only an accounting for oneself. Maybe there are new questions that we can bring to the fore to question our questions. Maybe there are new ways of seeing that can help us see differently. So I'm not committed to the plots that insist that we're all going to hell, that the world is, a, is that there's fire in the mountain, run, run, run. Neither am I, <laughs> neither am I unaware of the troubles and, and, and the conquest and the dying and the death and the, you know, all the, what Yoruba people call wahala, that troubles our people and people around the world. I'm not, I, but I want to hold that intention and say, maybe the world is calling us to a different kind of response today, to different kind of response abilities or response capacities. And this is what interests me at the moment. It, I absolutely agree with you. It interests me 
a lot as well, particularly because when I work with groups of women, I find a great sense of responsibility and requirement, uh, and a, uh, you know, a perceived requirement to save the world. And of course, everybody knows yes. we can't save the world. And so everybody then feels uh, like a failure. And in those circumstances, I'm absolutely with you. I propose promote a kind of uh, mythical resistance, a kind of resistance of yeah. the imagination, in a yes. sense. Absolutely, what I say is if I engage with my own place, whatever that place may be, a garden, you know, um, a bigger landscape, a city park, it doesn't really matter what, if I engage with that in some communicative way, then in some sense, I'm keeping the world alive and our, um, our link with it. I'm engaging with it. I'm, in, I'm strengthening what, you know, what has been called the anima mundi, the, the, the soul of the world. Yeah, because I'm pouring, yeah. I'm pouring myself yeah. into it, and, and it has to keep it alive in some sense. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, it, you use the phrases that excite me. <laughs> the uh, Fred, Frederic Apfel Marjolin, who wrote the book Subversive Spiritualities, was co-teaching with me at Schumacher, and she, <sighs> of course, spoke about the anima mundi and hylozoism, the doctrine that all of matter has life. And it's a beautiful thing to consider, you know, the, the idea that right there where we are is sacred. We don't need to travel afar or off to, to acquire some kind of a sacredness or indigenous belonging. Right where we are, this, the, the myth that we are dis, um, disconnected from the world is dying and connecting to place, connecting to people, connecting to plants, connecting to the world around us is is some kind of activism that may not get funding and may not be appreciated on CNN and Fox News, but, but it, is, it is consequential in a way we don't know how to describe. But having said that, Sharon, someone raised this question to me some time ago that doesn't this, doesn't, aren't there shadows with working that way? I mean, aren't you privileged to be able to say that mm. you can focus on your garden and then while people are dying elsewhere and they, they don't have gardens to focus on, and, and I want to acknowledge that because it's true. There are people who do not have the means to listen to our conversation right now, or will probably never understand what a podcast is, or even to know what a garden is. They are, and, and, and I know the taste of that life, um, having lived in a country where that is, that is quite familiar. But it's also important to say that there is no way to approach the world that does not have shadows. Um, I, I don't trust that there is a way that there is some unilateral final way to put plant our feet in the earth without displacing something. It means that we should be humble about everything we say and do and act upon. Yeah, but <laughs> let me leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting question. I suppose focusing on the word garden makes it sound a bit like a hobby, doesn't it? But, but of course, a lot of people work the land, you know, in a way. I mean, I've grown my own my own food in, in quite difficult conditions and the far reaches of the Outer Hebrides here in the UK. So I know how hard, how, how hard work, that, how much hard work that can be. But actually, the, yeah. the, the nature of that work, the, the very hardness of it was what was where I found my way into a deeper connection with the world, you know, so it wasn't through growing roses or whatever. It of was course. trying to get a tree to, to grow in a bog in the face of gales coming at me from both directions. So I think there are, there are various ways that, that one can do it, but you're quite right to point it out. I, I guess for me, the, the question um, always is when people talk about, you know, connecting ourselves back to the earth and what have you, you know, yeah. uh, what are the connectors? What are the bridges? Um, in my own work, it's very much always been, 
been about myth and story as a bridge and right. this old concept um, that um, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the work of um, Henri Corbin, the, the French philosopher who did a lot of work with old Sufi, mm. ancient Islamic thought, and his talking about their concept of the mundus imaginalis, a kind of an imaginal mm. world, um, a world where the images live, where the archetypes live, where the myths live, where the stories live, and this being a kind of a world that existed somewhere between our headspace, between our intellectual, you know, between the mind and the physical world. And so I always see myth and story as one way that we can connect ourselves, that we can bridge that perceived gap between ourselves right. and the world and very much enter into an imaginal relationship. What, what kind of, what other kind of bridges would, would you maybe offer up to people? Well, ritual. Well, let me, let me speak about that for a while. There are things that have been embedded in or that have been part of our practices that we haven't given much attention to because we just thought they were by the way, if you will. The, the act of opening one's home to the other, washing people's feet in a very material, corporeal act of kindness and, and belonging and shared identity um, that we've had for a long time, part of our indigenous technologies, but we don't give attention to it. I feel there, there is a sense in which these, these tech, social tech, techniques are making a comeback in some form or the other. I, I do trust that stories matter and telling our stories again and again, especially in a place that in, in sites where stories are, such stories are not accepted, where the intelligible, only in the modern sense, the progressive sense is accommodated. I feel that could be a way to hack into other modes of power. I also want to emphasize that the way I see story, for instance, is not as, is not linguistic. It's not, it's not just the, t the telling of it. I, I see stories as ancestral and material mm -hmm. thing. So that stories, we don't just tell stories. Stories tell us too. And our bodies are storied and embodied forms of being in the world. I, I don't know that I can speak to the specificities of people's conditions and say you can do this or you can do that, or there's some gener general way to approach crisis at this point. But, but I, I can say that I trust that there are openings here and there, and that the world is actively, when I say the world, I mean the non-human, not just human beings and human systems, but that the world around us is actively decolonizing itself. Donna Haraway speaks of nature as the deconstruction of itself, so that in a sense, the personal has always been public and the public has always been personal. So there are things that are waking up in our thoughts right now, in our stories, in our activities that are allowing us to reconnect ourselves with community, with the promise of being alive with a world. Um, and I would just say ritual again, even if it's improvising new rituals that that kind of embody what we'll like to see in the world. That's a beautiful thing to do. At Schumacher College, we did share some, we did have some rituals, you know, around washing each other's feet, uh, walking barefoot from river to river. That kind of experience might seem, you know, inadequate to any task of addressing our really stubborn challenges. But I feel that they open us up to new ways of thinking and being in the world today. I, th I think you're absolutely right. I mean, from, 
from our culture, for example, here in in um, in Ireland in the British Isles, a lot of the a lot of the old rituals that might have been present um, back in the day um, have pretty much been lost. You know, a lot of our lineage was lost. A lot of our specific yeah. um, spirit practices were lost we we a lot of the stories were written down but of course the spiritual practices were not written down because the catholic church would not permit it so we don't really yeah. know what our how our ancestors connected but sometimes but it often seems to me that it, it can be as simple as walking out of the door in the morning and just acknowledging what you're talking to literally yeah. naming saying hello to the creatures that you see around you the trees that you see around you mm. the directions to always know which direction you're facing in to orient yourself in the world you know there are mm. often there's a sense i think and maybe it's maybe it's a peculiarity of the west that we feel that we that we mustn't make up new rituals you know that we don't have permission in a sense that that somebody should have written yes. them down a thousand because then they would have been fixed we're so used to the to the bible you know uh, and and all religion stopping at right. 2000 years ago so that we mustn't make anything new up that i think there's a tendency and almost a fear in people to to create new things and uh, and that's something maybe that that's worth trying to overcome and you know that that's also probably part of the that's a consequence of the anthropological gaze the idea that ritual is maybe referring to some culture specific which it is, um, but exotic cultural practice that has nothing to do with the everyday or the ordinary. And so when people hear ritual, they think of this special thing, maybe painting their faces with some concoction and then running into the forest. But the, the, the way I understand ritual is, is what threads through our everyday, what makes, helps us make sense with the world. So going to the dentist is ritual. Waking up in the morning and checking your phone is ritual. <laughs> um, that's how we find our way and locate ourselves in the coordinates of modernity in the world. So the invitation here is what troubles us at this point in time? What have we repressed um, that wants to be expressed at this time? So there is really some beautiful potential, potentially generative work in holding spaces for people to grieve uh, or yeah. to share the disenchantment. We don't have grieving places. Of course, the work that we were trained in, Jared, you know, and psychotherapy and all of that, it, it doesn't quite count as what I would call a grieving place. Because the idea, <laughs> at least the way, <laughs> the way I was trained was to fix people up and get them on exactly. the way. Exactly. Exactly. Fix, you know, fix, fix. Yeah. Fix you, get out there, get on the, on the road again, hit the road and do, and put yourself together, man. <laughs> but Solution-focused therapy. Yes, solution-focused therapy. Is so, that a terrible yeah. word for you? Yeah, because it assumes that people, people can be fixed that, mm -hmm. that, and that we can do the fixing. That, and it also situates the trouble in the human, as if the human is disconnected from what we've rudely called the environment. And, and these, these boundaries are breaking apart. So sharing shadows, you know, there's a friend of mine who started a university up north in India called Swaraj University. It's nothing like any university you know, where they have jealousy circles, where people come together and share, and share their jealousy. You know, just like you would share your chicken butter, pass it around. I don't know if it's done in Ireland, but it's certainly done in India. It's, it's a moment of of celebration when someone catches it because they pass it around for those who don't have it so they can go through with it. So, so, so uh, this sharing, this sharing of shadows, this noticing ourselves, 
I've, I've often invited people that I've spoken with to hug their monsters, to name their monsters. You know, that deep feeling that they would, that, that they would rather keep under so that they can be productive in a capitalist totalitarian system. Those things that they would rather repress. What would it mean to actually embrace them, to embrace the darkness and, and to share it, not in a bid to fix yourself, but in, a, in recognition that the world works that way, a dance of light right. and shadow of tragedy and hope. And that's how the world comes to be. Embodiment is painful. But how do we find ways to ritualize this? And, and, and yeah, those are some of the things that are becoming possible and intelligible today. Is the, these ideas about what is what is becoming possible um, about the changes in our that are emerging in our in our way of looking at the world? I guess that that's tied up in the work that you're doing with uh, with the Emergence Network. And yes. would you like to tell us about that about that project? Well, the, right. Uh, so the Emergence Network is is a curatorial group of of people around the world that form an organization that holds space for the question. What if the way we respond to crisis is part of the crisis? I, again, I, let me use this entry point to talk about the Emergence Network. Most conversations around the world today privilege this question. What can we do? You know, what do we do about this? It's climate change, loss of biodiversity, desertification, and de desertification. What do we do all of, about all these troubles in the world today? About poverty and economic inequality or terrorism? The question is always, what do we do about this? But I feel that question occludes and displaces another equally important question, one that we sometimes do not pay attention to. And that question is, what are we already doing? Or what are, we, what are the doings we're immersed in? And how does this shape how we respond to the world at large? So the work that we do in the Emergence Network can be set, um, centered around this concept of post-activism, which is not to say we've gone beyond activism or we have a spanking, shining new epistemology that everyone ought to adopt, regardless of their context or specificity. That's not the idea, but an invitation to slow down in times of urgency, to hold space for different conversations that might crack open new ways of responding. So I have to admit that the conditions for holding this kind of work are not always possible. I, like I've said over time, if my daughter were to fall into a well, I'm not, and God forbid that happens, I will not slow down in that time of urgency. I will do all I can to save her, right? But there are sometimes when the condition is right, when we can actually heed the words of our elders to slow down in times of urgency and to slow down not because we want to get it right or not because we want to adopt or co-opt some indigenous means to the same ends we've already described, but because the world is rhizomatic, if I could use that word, is promiscuous. It dances here and there and new paths are always opening. But if we're committed so strictly to following the highway, we will never notice that a crack in the highway could take us to more interesting places. So what we try to do is articulate projects that embody this slowing down, this sanctuary, this place of recognizing that the world is also at work in decolonizing itself. And we are not called to save the world. 
Um, I could give examples of the projects that we've articulated around this. Just one example, mm -hmm. which, which embraces the concept of futures literacy. In um, legacy institutions like UNESCO and the OECD, uh, nation states are still committed to the idea that we can predict the future. And that if only we held back on all the uncertainty, we can determine what will happen to us as a human species in 2050 or 2100 or the way down the line. And all we need to do is just get our act together and tell a new story. But what this, mm -hmm. what this reinforces is the idea that we have it all together, that we are the creators of the world and we can shape the world's agentic matterings just by determining what works for us. So there is the, there are a group of people that are embracing the uncertainty and asking questions like, what if we saw uncertainty as a resource, not as an obstacle? What does not knowing, and, and I'm saying it again, that this is happening right in legacy institutions like UNESCO, that what if instead of trying to predict the future, we sat still and we held practices that can open up spaces for people to think differently about who has power, who is invited, and who has the ability to speak and change the world? What if we got into these real questions without trying to find some kind of solution-based work? And I've seen it work. This is what the Emerges Network is doing, among other practices. I've seen this in places like Senegal. I've seen it happen in Nigeria. I've seen it happen in South Africa. I've seen it happen in Paris. I've seen it in uh, lab, lab um, I don't want to call it laboratory conditions, but that's one of the names that is used to describe this kind of work. I've seen it happen in these places where people are brought together and young people are asked, what, what would the world look like in 2063? And they almost always repeat what Microsoft or Apple or the mass media tells them to say. We would have an iPhone 20 or we would have flying cars. <laughs> and they, there's the imagination, the, the possibility to think beyond these frameworks are not there. But immediately we make explicit the assumptions that they use to make the future. They have an aha experience. And why do we need to think of the future in this way? And suddenly power is made available to do something differently. So this is the kind of post-activist work that we're doing. Not to try to find a solution, even as much as solutions are important, but to try to sit with the trouble, to borrow Haraway's words, to stay with the trouble, to linger at the edge of unintelligibility long enough so that we can be met by a world that is also active in its own mattering. Wonderful. Yeah, no, that sounds like wonderful uh, work. And one of, one of the other areas, which I guess in some way feeds into that, but one of the other areas that I know that you're working in is, is another area that's very close, uh, very dear to my own heart. You work with the, um, the International Alliance for Localization. And this yes, is, I've done some work uh, with them, yeah. Yeah, and this is very much about the renewal of kind of community, ecological health and, and local economics, so very much local driven as opposed to globalization. And I'm curious, I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts about that, because certainly in some of the circles that I've moved in, local has a bit of a bad rap. You know, local <laughs> people, people always seem to, to want to think in black and white about some of these terms. And so local has become in Western uh, intellectual circles associated with close-minded, with small, with... With provincial. Uh, with, 
with provincial, with nationalism in a very negative sense. Right, and, right. you know, we, we are told that we must be global in order to be proper human beings fit for a proper human future. But really, it, it's local is seen as very limiting in that sense, as if, as if the focus on local must of necessity involve only ever looking inwards, you know, the sense that you can't possibly combine a global perspective in one sense with a focus on the local. So that sense of local being seen as limiting, I'm, I'm curious to know how, how you, you think that can be overcome. Right. Yeah, I understand where those negative connotations emerge from, especially in a, in a, a worldview or a zeitgeist, an, an age when we, would, we see relevance with bigness and expansiveness where the narrative of human, of human agency still invites us to, to think that we can be anything we want to be and we can do anything we want to do. It's still, I think that's still popular when we teach uh, in cartoons today when <laughs> we, that we show our kids. You can be anything you choose to be. Just, just decide what you want to be and you can do it. Maybe, maybe the urge or the impulse of localization isn't, isn't provincialism isn't an, a closeness to what the world is becoming, but actually a deep accounting for what the world is becoming. We're, we're, uh, let me put it this way, that we are recognizing the need for limitations. It's the need for boundaries. And I, I don't mean walls by boundaries. I don't mean a Trumpian fascist arrangement, but I do mean that the, the global arrangement of things, the ways that we think about the world as open and free and available to anyone who wants to take it is also a story that is being composted. Because when we notice how our food gets to us, for instance, how the, just the infrastructure of transferring just a tin of baked beans from the West to us here in India or to what people will call the global South, when we think about what it takes to produce that and the poisons and the chemicals it takes to maintain food to be transferred across those distances, we start to ask questions. Why do we not notice the sacredness of where we are and begin to plant our own food and re-sacralize our own connections to place and to neighborhoods? We're not closed to the outside because those boundaries are have since, have since imploded. The boundary between the inside and the outside have imploded. So I don't think of localization, for instance, as, as a way of cutting off the rest of the world or, or saying that the world doesn't matter or, or saying that there aren't global consequences for local configurations. None of that is how I would see that. I would actually see it as a deepening of our accountability to the world at large. When we pay attention to what is right in front of us, we are paying attention to a world at large because if we think of ourselves as connected in a web of life, then there's no inside or outside. Localization becomes a thickening of the web, not, not a closing of any uh, or territorialization of any place. So the work that I've done with the International Alliance for Localization is to call out or to name these systems that actually make our lives, uh, you know, poisonous, toxic, if you will. The, the idea that big is the only way to frame our lives is, is at the heart of our narrative of schooling, for instance, that takes children away from their villages and takes them to the city and promises them jobs like the Pied Piper and 
jobs don't come for them, so they're disillusioned and they end up committing crimes on the street. What if the story needs to change? What if the, the whole infrastructure is sick and needs something different? So localization becomes this practice of resacralizing presence. Instead of seeking it afar or stretching out our hands in order to maintain ourselves, we embrace a neighborliness, an intimacy with land and people. And we learn to see that right there under our feet matters. And if it matters, then we don't need to depend on giant corporatist organizations and, and movements. We, we don't need to depend on all of that. We can, we, can depend right, we can depend on the people right in front of us for beautiful and more you know, animated livelihoods. Yeah, I, I often think working as I do so much with the, the stories of place and the storying of place, think that, that globalization is in many ways responsible for our inability to belong to, to any particular place, you know, because we, we, so many people are looking at the world and imagining that somewhere else, so anywhere other than where they are, is the perfect place for them. In the same kind of way that we might imagine that there's the perfect love, you know, when we're very, very young, of course, that somewhere there's a perfect place and it's not here. We don't have to worry about here because because here isn't that you know we haven't been taught that here matters anymore whereas i'm yeah. very much focused focused on on persuading people to find to, to know and to understand and to care for whatever place their feet are actually planted in whether or not they think they're going to be there forever whether or yeah. not it's the perfect place for them but just because there's no other way of, of being properly alive you know if you're yes. always living in your head in some kind of global world if you're always looking to to elsewhere then you're not actually fully fully alive yeah it, it, you know the the myth as you've called if as you've named it you know globalization the myth of globalization in my understanding is the idea of a flat earth that everywhere is everywhere is open if you will there are no bumps and grooves and cracks in the earth it's all flat and if it's flat then you should think in terms of opportunity and you should think in terms of a congregation of people away from the places that are local and are small and are right here and right now and so we learn to think in those ways to pathologize here the here now and to think in terms of progress along a linear probably anorexic timeline that would take us from here to the future. <laughs> it's probably the case why futurists are so enchanted with the future that they forget the now. They're so heavenly minded that, that they're of no earthly relevance, if you will. And so, so here, the, the deep invitation here is, is to notice differently. And, and that doesn't necessarily translate to close the borders. It's, it's to notice ourselves differently. And in noticing ourselves, we notice the queerness of presence. We notice the queerness of sacredness. We notice that the sacred is not a far off, it's right here. And immediately in restoring our lives that way, in re-ritualizing ourselves and our communities that way, what begins to make itself available? What does listening entail from that perspective? Those are interesting questions that, um, yeah, that I feel are alive in these charged times. And I wonder if I could just ask you one final question, because I'm aware that we're running out of time. <laughs> I was changing tack a little bit. I was reading the first few pages of your book, which okay. is beautifully titled, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, 
Letters right. to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home. And I, I'm just going to give it a plug here, if I may, because it was very, very, to anybody who's listening, read it, because it's very, very beautifully written. It's intensely lyrical, but not overwrought. And it's very, very easy to get overwrought <laughs> when you're lyrical. And you never, you never step over that barrier. It's, it's absolutely beautifully written. It's very poetic, very naturally done. But it is, it is about, it's very much about talking to your, your young, lovely daughter about yeah. the world and about and about the way that you see it and I'm kind of curious I'm not being a parent myself a lot of people who are listening obviously will be how do you how do you raise a child in times like this big question uh, we haven't got very long but <laughs> you can go that's for an it enti- that's an entire episode I was just <laughs> I just got a book yesterday <laughs> called children in the anthropocene so you know that we are resonating wow. deeply yeah in, in the, that's the question that led me to write the book that there are places my daughter will will plant her feet that I will never witness. And what does it mean to be responsible in this time to generations yet unborn? What does it mean to ask questions about longevity and ancestrality and children and parenting? And, and so that inspired me to write a book, a book of letters and, and those letters being a prayer, if you will. Not, not quite a hand my daughter a map and say, this is all we did wrong, this is where you should go, but to actually share my, myself, if you will, if, if you could visualize this, to gently hold her hand and help her touch the very soft and vulnerable and broken places of my own generation and my own selves, my many selves, and to say, maybe this might be helpful to you in the world that, is, that you're going to be part of. So I do not know how to answer the question of what wants to come or what it means to be a parent in these very troubled times. But I, I have a sense that I cannot completely articulate or justify in terms of an argument. I have an impulse that what we might be called today to do is to hold space for them to do their work. I think it's a, quite a popular saying that the fact that we continue to have kids is God's way of affirming his faith in humanity without literally, without dancing into deities and all of that and oracles. I do want to say that we need to tell new stories to our children. And part of those stories is not telling them about our manifestos for how we think the world wants to happen, but to actually share our lack of confidence, to lose confidence, to, to, to fall to the ground before our kids to lose our macho supremacies and our patriarchal distances and to fall to the feet of our children and say, we don't know, we have no clue. Not that we're at fault or not that I want you to articulate us as sinners because that's also repeating a very problematic paradigm. But we, are, we have been part of larger movements and shifts in the world that has brought us to this time where everything seems to be going up in the air. Now, we don't know what to do, but we want to listen to you. We want to listen more to you, to, to follow you, and to, to play with you, and to hold you in a way that you can do your work and help us see differently. I, told, I tell a story in the book, and I'm, I'm going to end it here just very quickly, about my daughter taking me to a river, and me looking down over um, my, this is like spoiler alert, I understand you have to say that. <laughs> uh, since you're still reading the book, I turned down to my daughter 
And I'm just alone there with her. I promised myself that I was going to do everything she said I was going to, uh, she told me to do that day. If she wanted me to jump five times or 10 times or 50 times, I was going to do it. So she took me to a river by my obedience and I, we were silent and it was becoming awkward. And I turned to my daughter and I feel in my heart that this feels like a good father-daughter moment, a Kodak moment. I'm just going to share my heart with her. And I, as I begin to speak with her, she, she holds her finger to her mouth and says, shh. And she, shushed, she, you know, she shushed me up and I'm just staring in the awkwardness of that. And we're just standing by the river. And immediately in that moment, I, I have something close to an epiphany, an almost epiphany. I start to notice things anew. I, I don't quite float yet and a halo doesn't appear on my head, but I notice and I hear... <laughs> I hear the voices the, of things around me, of the docks, of, you know, of, the, of the wind rustling through the trees. Things just come suddenly alive for me in a way that hasn't happened for me in a long time because I've been so busy with laptops and speeches and travel. And she just does this and it just breaks me apart. And I wonder what happens, what could happen if we actually listen to our children. And maybe this has implications for our schooling systems and our educational assumptions. What would happen if we paid attention to what our children were doing? This is my own post-activism, and I invite others to, to be intrigued <laughs> and to share that well, curiosity. Indeed, I think that's the, that's the finest answer to that question that I've ever received. So thank you. There's a lot of, a lot of food for thought in there that you actually <laughs> admit to your kids that we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> thank you know. so much. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you so much for taking the time, Bio. It's been an absolute pleasure, a real pleasure Wonder to talk to you. And anybody who is interested in any of the threads that we've been talking about can visit your website, the address of which will be linked to on the podcast. So thank you again and all the best with, with your future projects. Thank you, Sharon. Great talking with you. And if you did enjoy our conversation, do please continue to follow our work at the Hedge School, where you'll find free resources as well as paid-for courses designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. It's about dreaming and it's about waking up. Above all, it's about dreaming ourselves awake. Our podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. And if you are able to support our work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for The Hedge School. Or you can find a link on our website at www.thehedgeschool.org. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.